0: That's the last time, Bender. That's the last time you ever make me look bad in front of those kids, do you hear me? I make $31,000 a year, and I've got a home, and I'm not about to throw it away on some punk like you. But someday, man, someday, when you're out of here, and you've forgotten all about this place, and they've forgotten all about you, and you're wrapped up in your own pathetic life, I'm going to be there. That's right. And I'm going to kick the living shit out of you, man. I'm going to knock your dick in the dirt.
1: Hello there, welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio,
0: and this is episode 71. And I know that because we just recorded episode 72. <laughs>
1: um, in you know, this is going to be... Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a vacation, so we're pre-recording this episode. Um, so it'll be a little bit different, but we're still going to drink yeah, a beer. We drank um, a couple beers already. I think this is the last of the, of the dark beers, right? Because the we're next time we talk to you to... folks, it's going to be spring. I mean,
0: for you folks... Who are listening to us you're like what the fuck are you talking about you've been consistent episodes every week we're gonna take a break next week you're gonna get a special episode we filmed yeah months ago
1: now months ago yeah like six months ago we've had it about, about movies Naga. that came out two years ago yeah
0: one of them being Kokonaga's new movie who we just realized, we just heard about today Colin Farrell being cast in his new sci-fi film Yep, that's two weeks from now you're hearing this though so it's yeah. old news to you Colin Farrell might not even be alive anymore <laughs>
1: Let's hope so. Let's hope so. so he's alive. Um, what,
0: not alive? I like Colin Farrell. I'm no, like... let's hope he's alive. Oh, yeah. Hmm, hmm. Also, by the way, if you get a chance to see, I don't, ha- I don't know the, the website, I'm not going to look it up right now, but look up Koganaga's top ten films of the past decade and realize you haven't seen a lot of movies. Yeah. And that Koganaga definitely deserves to write video essays for Criterion, because wow.
1: Yeah, he, I saw him um,
0: more, and I saw like three of the movies he listed. I didn't hear of like I, three of them. Well, it's, it's the
1: thing; it's not even that we didn't see them. I hadn't even heard of some of those movies. It was just like, well, that's a movie. <laughs> um, we're going to back to Kent Falls with this with this today's beer. Um, it is a substrate. It is a black lager, five percent alcohol. Um, it's in a beautiful black can. Yeah, black gray. and gray let's industrial put these together it's almost like an
0: industrial arts but Mm. not industrial arts because that's a different brewery that's Mm. that fragrance is intense what is that that is just that feels like what I expect it smells like Mm. when I was a child and sexism and all that was rampant like (laughs) what masculinity was supposed to smell like this is what it smells like to me (laughs) Like, before before the world cut up with, like, the actual world. I just want to keep smelling. I don't want to drink it. I kind of want to wear this. It has like, a fragrance. Don't you kind of want to smell like this? No, seriously. Don't you kind of, like... Would it, doesn't this feel like if you're at the gym, you know, pumping iron?
1: I think this is a good... So, Mario, this is a good... Oh, my God. It tastes like it smells. This is a good beer to transition with because it's a black lager. But this tastes like a... Fucking garden. It, it is though? rich, but also it's like just it's so rich, but it also has these really bright floral notes in it too. Really, this tastes like Mandy in a can. <laughs> that's what that would taste like. You think it would taste like a garden? Yeah, this would taste like the LSD fucking, out of the jar.
0: It tastes like fucking metal to me. Like not metal in the sense of like m- no actual metal. But that's what
1: I'm saying. It has that kind of earthy. Yeah, it's super very, and I think that's what I mean by fucking delicious. What I mean by garden is not like the green parts. I mean like the parts under the ground. You know what I mean? Like this is this is this is gonna sound like a a negative thing to say, but it
0: almost tastes like the decay Mm. of it. But it's like an earthiness. It tastes alive. Yeah, that's crazy. This might be one of the best beers we've had. Jesus Christ, Kent Falls. Good job. It's a good beer. We can end the podcast. Who cares about our 71s? I mean, I care about Tom's 71. We don't have to care about my 71. We're just smelling the can. <laughs> this is a terrible podcast right now.
1: <laughs> Not if you Kent Falls.
0: Yeah, if you're Kent Falls, you're fucking jizzing all your yourself right now. But... Mm. Ah, just Huxley, this is like Soma. Mm-hmm. It's like the Soma. This is, this is what the Guinness is with. This is going to make me vote for Trump in
1: 2020. <laughs> I hope not.
0: Um. Don't, don't tweet us that. If you're going to tweet us anything,
1: don't worry, gentlemen and ladies. Jesus, Mario. We will not vote for Trump. All right. Um, so we will be right back with our number 71s. <laughs>
0: My number seventy-one this week. Usually, usually I give you guys an introduction, but we're watching this movie. I'm not a particular fan of it, but it has to. Sp- Some of these movies show up on your list. They just got to be on your list because when you watched them as a youth, a youth, as a child, Utes. they really struck you, and you just—they just shaped how you saw movies and how you thought. Growing up would be Mm -hmm. My number 71 this week 1985's John Hughes film The Breakfast Club
1: A brain, a beauty A jock, a rebel And a recluse
0: Can't believe this is really happening to me
1: Before this day is over They'll break the rules (coughs)
0: Chicks can I hold a smoke? That's what it is
1: Bear their souls I'm a nymphomaniac Are your parents aware of this? Take some chances.
0: Being bad feels pretty good.
1: And touch each other in a way they never dreamed possible.
0: Let's go right into the conversation. The Breakfast Club, bunch of five delinquents doing delinquent things. (laughs) And when I saw this when I was younger, there was, you know, growing up in in the late 90s, um, early uh 2000s a lot of a lot of the teen films were were about rebel were heavily leaning into that rebellion which i believe they've always done and this movie kind of leans into the rebellion but but it was more of a a sense of a lot of things i got from the 90s were always like we're outsiders and and not you know we're outsiders trying to get in, and we're just trying to find a place. And the Breakfast Club spoke to me in a different way, in the sense that it spoke to a world that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. That was a complete fantasy. I grew up in a very small ranching town, so these cliques that the Breakfast Club shows us don't didn't exist. Mm-hmm. It was basically, hey, I, I I live near a bunch of cows. I also lived near a bunch of cows. Oh, yeah? Well, I lived near a horse ranch. <laughs> and that guy was cool. So all these films about trying to be accepted or trying to be an outsider, you know, like, like the, these, these kind of like films in the late 90s, this, this American pie sort of scenario where like, it was just like living the kind of normal thing didn't, didn't speak to me. They just kind of felt dull. Breakfast Club was interesting because it was a completely new world for me. Mm-hmm. It was a completely foreign world, with characters who were around my age. Doing things that didn't make any sense to me, but I had known from the history of the film that it spoke to the teenagers of the time. <clears throat> that you know, it was it was one of those landmark sort of John Hughes films that that spoke to a generation. Mm-hmm. And I watched it going, "This movie just feels like bullshit," and now I see this movie again, and I'm like, "It feels like bullshit," but it's intriguing bullshit
1: ah when did you watch it did you just watch it you did right where you watched it yeah
0: yeah I didn't just watch it for the first time (laughs) no 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 that would be great I was like yeah I've been lying this entire pivot. I've been picking movies randomly
1: because I felt the same Like, so I just watched I think I watched it two days ago and it's the first time I've seen it in a while I watched it over the weekend um and again I hate this I hated this movie a bad growing up. It's because I movie. It's got
0: it's got a really fun Anthony Michael Hall performance. It's got a really good Paul Gleason performance, but Paul Gleason's just fucking magnetic. Well, I think you get a good
1: Ally Sh- I mean, I think you get a good Ali, like a really good Ally shitty performance out of this too. I don't
0: know. She's good, but she's not given enough to do because John Hughes didn't know the right women.
1: Right, but Take she that is, guy who she died is interesting this character with um, she gives it a lot, lot of pain,
0: more pain than what was ever written, right.
1: By John um, Hughes. So when I watched it as a kid, I you know I watched it as a teenager, and I was like, I don't, I I think the thing I always thought was that I was supposed to see some version of myself in this movie. You know what I mean? When you're a teenager, you're supposed to look at this movie and say, like, this is my life. This nope. is exactly how high school was. In the same, in blah, same exact blah, blah,
0: blah. way. I, I felt nothing.
1: Me, too, me neither. I was like, I, this is nothing like anything that I've ever done. These people are dumb. Who cares? But when I watched it when I, as a 36-year-old, I still didn't connect with it on every, any level. But in the same way that you said you found it intriguing, I also found it intriguing. I was like, this movie is actually kind of interesting. And not... Because of what it says about teenagers, but just kind of because of how, like, the early scenes are composed, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like a a little, you know, like a play almost. Um, And they get into some fairly heavy emotional crap for, like, a bunch of kids. And especially kids that aren't supposed to be that open about their feelings. All of a sudden they get Saturday detention and they're just like... Like, instead of unpacking their lunches, they're unpacking paper bags full of their feelings. Just people they don't know. I mean, the only people that know each other, like, know each other, are Claire, played by Molly Ringwald, and Andrew, played by Emilio Estevez. They know who Bender is. Famed director, Emilio Estevez. Yeah, famed director of the Bobby Kennedy movie. Bobby. I believe it's just called Bobby.
0: It is Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, you don't say the Bobby Kennedy movie, you just say, oh, Bobby.
1: Which is a Bob. It could be a Bob. It could be a Bob Vila movie. We don't know that. Oh, man. It's called Bobby. It's about the inside
0: life of Bob Vila. I'd pay good money to see Amelia West of a directed Bob Vila movie. <laughs> and Star. Especially as if you Bob like. Vila. No, you get Norm Abram playing Bob Vila.
1: Wow. You are. Oh, I'm distracted now. Yeah, this beer's good. Um. They're, no, it's, all, it's they're a, all very willing. It's, inter- it's, an, it's interesting how willing they are to just kind of be like, yeah, here's my whole life.
0: This is the thing for me that, that struck me as interesting. And we talk about this a lot in terms of politics and in terms of history. I, I very much always take even current events and, and slices of life from an a interesting sort of Sociological, historical perspective, sort of thing, mm-hmm. like we talked about, like the the Michael the, from a few weeks ago, week, yeah. from a few weeks ago, I guess now, the Michael Cohen things. <laughs> God knows what's <laughs> happened since then. Jesus, oh, um, man. <laughs> not, Trump has just declared himself president for thirty years, uh, but it's interesting to see a slice of life and and see how like things led to this spot. Mm. And it's always been interesting to me, even as a teenager when I saw this, looking for like a oh, I can have an in here. or Oh, this is going to speak to me. Realizing it didn't, but knowing that a lot of people said it spoke to him and realizing that a lot of people said that, that, that this was the thing that made, that this was the quintessential teen yeah! film, the, the Brat Pack, that this is, I see myself as a Bender or a Claire or an Andrew or a Brian, blah, blah, blah. And just watching this, I'm like, I don't see myself as any of this, but it makes me intrigued and keep coming back to it. Because I don't see what they see. But it makes me want to see the lens of people I know, or people that we're surrounded by, through the lens of film.
1: Right. So this is, I mean, this is literally, Mario, literally the exact conversation me and my wife are having after having watched The Breakfast Club. Well, no, she... I, I'm, I mean, it's the same
0: person. Yeah. Guys, me and Tom are married. <laughs> what a twist.
1: Um... I was saying the same thing. Like I, and she was just like this movie's dumb, and I was like, this movie is dumb. But um, and we had a really long conversation about the idea that even though movies are shitty and we don't connect with them, something like this, which is kind These of like a touch,
0: you probably shouldn't say movies are shitty. No, but so,
1: I said some movies are shitty.
0: Oh no, you said movie. Even though movies, even are though shit. movies are shitty, you didn't say which that. Which negates
1: the whole rest <laughs> of our podcast. You, you did say that. Though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um these are kind of like the breakfast club was kind of like a cultural touchstone and it was something that you had to watch once you hit a certain age like you were required to watch the breakfast club and i think like i said it was because you were expected to see an aspect of yourself yeah and like the fucking, contained that fucking, within like this movie
0: like you know where john hughes just takes a fucking letter opener to his nose because he's going so on the nose and says like each of us is a brain an athlete a basket case a princess yeah. line, a criminal and it's like no i'm none of these people like and it's like it art like do people see themselves in one of these people and i don't know like, i i don't because they're such caricatures they're so like plainly under like they're, they're laying their hearts out to each they're not doing anything a real person
1: does no, they're 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 not, but they're they're not doing anything a real person does, but I think they're I think the point that he's making in that statement is the idea that regardless of who of which clique you kind of pledge your allegiance to, you are um you have problems. Unless. And your problems are not that much unlike the problems of somebody else. So when Andrew's trying to say that he's nothing like Bender like in reality, both of their, both of this, I mean, the 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 gravity of their situation is that they're in Saturday detention. You know what I mean? They're not like in jail or in the army, or like you know, homeless or something like that. They just got Saturday detention. Um, they're both in this predicament because of their debts, You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of thing. Like someone watching this, like. You couldn't have two more different guys. Like, one guy that can break a window with the power of his his high scream. And, you know, one guy who I'm not sure what is happening with his pants. Like, are they whole pants? Or why are there so many bandanas? Like, are they serving a purpose? Where did he get that shoe when he's shooting basketball? Like, he's wearing, like, a basketball sneaker all of a sudden. Like, where did he get that shoe from? So there's another character that just mysteriously manifests shoes out of nowhere. But we're supposed oh, Car- to... Oh, s- Carl's providing them all the shoes. <laughs> we're, supposed, um, we're supposed to see, in watching this movie, how alike they are, even though they think they're very different.
0: And This is, this is one of my things I always thought was interesting. Uh, I mean, not, not actually. No, I never al- always thought this. I just thought this recently. Mm-hmm. Is the choice of words at the ending. Where he says, each of us is a brain and blah, blah, blah. And the use of the end could have been really clever Mm -hmm. if he had had Anthony Michael Hall kind of like pointing that out using end. So like each of us is all of these things rolled in together. And even though it would have been really on the nose and once again, kind of speaking to nonsense, it at least would have been somewhat interesting if he'd been like, each of us is, is all of these things. Mm-hmm. Like, we're all these things rolled together no matter what we think. Like, we subdivide ourselves, but once in the end, we're all the same sort of thing. And it would have been, you know, I'm, I'm doing a very obvious hand motion going up and down.
1: But... You know you're doing the Judd Nelson at the end of the movie.
0: Why is he so victorious? What did he win? Because he's going to cross that field, man. And he's going to pawn that earring and buy cigarettes. Because he's going to kill... <laughs> Emilia de Ravon and convince <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt that somebody else
1: did it. Yep. That's, he walks right <laughs> from one movie into another one.
0: To a better movie. Um, but like, that's the thing, is this movie so unsubtle but so like, even the times it could do something interesting on the nose, it doesn't, that it just is like a train wreck of a film. But it's a really intriguing train wreck. In the sense, that's an interesting movie. It's a, It's it's got goodish performances. It's it, it's decently directed. It's badly written, but it's it works. Well, it's, interestingly, it's it's like, it's
1: badly written, can, but it's also really interestingly written. Basically,
0: in, in other words, it's not a movie that that if there was a big snowstorm outside and the only thing I could watch was Breakfast Club, before going on in my life but i had to watch breakfast club first i wouldn't be so upset that i had to watch breakfast club again i mean so it works there but it's not doing the things that people seem to suggest it does and that's what makes me always interested in it is that it is not doing anything besides existing for 97 100 minutes and then just ending you know it it doesn't it's not profound and everyone says it's so profound. And, and, and this is the thing, like even back when I saw it, like people saw something in it mm. and I can't find it and I need to find it. And I like, and so whereas for, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't know necessarily the, I, you know, the people like my, my mother really loved, my mom really loved it. Doing it every week now. Um, you know, where where it spoke to them, or it spoke to like their their state of life, and like I don't see what this movie does that does it, but in doing so, it's not so bad. It's not a such a bad movie or an incompetent movie. They just brush it off. It, it's still there's still some elements of, of form that then becomes an intriguing curiosity.
1: Well, so I'm interested in the sense, I just want to clarify. It's a pivotal film because I think because it's, it's, it's because a, you saw it when you were supposed to, and it missed everything.
0: It missed everything. It was supposed, supposed to, to do. speak to me, in, but it worked in a sense of it did something completely differently, and I can't get it out of my head, and I keep rewatching it. Right, I and
1: mean, in that missing, it's just kind of like, well, what am I like? What I mean, did I, I, I will, not I
0: will, have? I will fully admit, I fucking love. Don't you forget about me. I still love that song. Mm-hmm. That's a good song. It's a hooky. It's a real. It's a real jammer for me i, lo- I like that song what do you but like of- that's the only thing that works for me is that song I just wanted- like nothing else that 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 the only thing that works for me that's supposed to work is that song, that song yeah. and that um that paul gleason performance but everything else that's supposed to work doesn't work but it's still intriguing
1: i have a question that I, I i wanted to ask when i watched it again um what did you think about the idea that the movie is kind of bookended by this by the song and by like the brian speech Like, what do you think the purpose of that is? Like, wouldn't that hit? Like, is he is he kind of suggesting that we should be looking out for something, and then is giving it to us at the end, and then kind of like reiterating the thing that we knew? Like, and so now we know it differently, or wouldn't it have been more powerful to just kind of leave that at the end, like this profound statement of like what we've learned, because we've already know this going into the like he's telling us in the beginning of the movie, like here's the things that we're supposed to pull out of this movie. It's almost uh, yeah. like a like a uh, like a term paper, or, you know, an APA style paper with a kind of synopsis of what this thing is going to be about, and then we get to see it, and then it's just like, oh, this works like this, you know. What I mean, what I don't what would the purpose of that be? Do you think? Because that really bugged me.
0: Well, I think the purpose, like, what do you think the intention is of of doing that? I think the yeah. intention is to say we're here in the beginning, and then over the course of seven eight hours. We get to this place where we realize this, the status of self, but the status of self being, we are all different, but we're all the same in the end. We're all like,
1: but we already we, we work as
0: a cohesive unit. But, but he already said that.
1: Yeah. Like he said that when the movie starts, like, oh, we're all this person. And then, but I guess we just don't understand because we didn't see the but movie. But it's like an
0: intellectual understanding versus like a, a living it. Like oh. when everyone says, like, yeah. 100%, this movie's garbage when it comes to like delivering the message it's supposed to but it's really interesting that so many people think it does
1: deliver the message it thinks it's supposed to
0: mm. it's a bad movie if you haven't seen it
1: then you don't have to see it but I mean if we have any high school students watching they're gonna have to see it
0: watch Brick instead
1: <laughs>
0: Brick I think Brick replaces this movie for me in That in a movie that doesn't work as well and speaks kind of to an A more modern time,
1: but it is clicky, and there's definitely brick is
0: very clicky. Yeah, I think, but I think brick is a little more sound, and it's,
1: yeah, there's there's definitely a differentiation between the social classes in brick, which would which would um appropriately supplant some of the stuff that's going on here at the Breakfast Club, and
0: I think I think brick. In the same way as, like, a failure in, in certain things it's trying to do, but also in the same way it's a good end to, like, other movies. Whereas Breakfast Club kind of exists as this weird, like, totem
1: or monolith mm. of its own. And yep. it,
0: doesn't, it doesn't give you access thing or film. Like,
1: well, nothing yeah, it does. Breakfast Club... Well, no other John Hughes movies. Well, you don't have to watch Or the Dead Zone TV show. <laughs> oh, yeah. On
0: USA. Um, but... Like, Breakfast Club doesn't do anything besides exist as a curiosity, but a really weird curiosity that digs itself into your brain. And I find like, it becomes. It's, it's, it's the same curiosity in a sense, maybe a little better of a film, as Dreamcatcher the film was. No. In the sense that nope. how does Dreamcatcher the film exist? The, the Dreamcatcher is wondering. the worst
1: movie I've ever seen in my life.
0: But don't you wonder how Dreamcatcher exists?
1: In a in a world like, like in any in this
0: like version how, of reality, how like, is there a movie? Like, How that's, there was somebody who had millions of dollars and was like, "I am going to." And his this name
1: this Lawrence Kasdan, and it was like, "You know what's a good idea? Butt aliens. It's an awesome idea. We gotta Shit do weasels, the butt aliens. Man. Shit weasels." Uh, in the least appealing man. four character actors that you could possibly find in I, a if movie, I, if we
0: had a little like wall, we could mark that we got back to Lawrence Kasdan.
1: We did it. We did it. Fuck you, Lawrence. Take that, Lawrence.
0: Guys. We're right back with Tom's number seventy-one.
1: Welcome back. Uh, My number seventy-one is uh, Tokyo Story.
0: Another, Another movie that's pretty terrible that you know
1: we we like for some reason. I guess it's just I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing anymore, Mario. Um, It is a 1953 film uh, by the acclaimed um, pivotal Japanese filmmaker uh, Yasuhiro Ozu. It um, stars a bunch of Japanese actors and actresses. Um, I will actually list them on um, our website, PivotalFilm.com, because... I'm not going to try to say all of their names um, because it'll just be a long, embarrassing um, list of of people that I don't understand. Most how importantly,
0: to say it. this was Paul Schrader's second greatest movie of all time.
1: Well, so this is a movie that's kind of had a uh, um, it's had a long, but um, how to say it, um, pregnant kind of. Relationship with American filmgoers, so it didn't get released here until nineteen seventy i don't think yeah, 72. It took a long time um, um, but then seventy two s- since it's been come out it's actually in you know in Europe and in America it has been you know slowly climbing the kind of best films of all time list um,
0: it repeatedly in what science sound science sound yeah often no. takes over the number one spot
1: mm mm-hmm. This movie um, was pivotal to me before I even knew what Sight and Sound was, or before um, there was a place for me to go look at, you know, whatever the number one movie of of all time was going to be. Except for going to a Barnes and Noble's and looking for a copy of Empire or something, and them having a, you know, paying fifteen dollars to buy a British movie magazine to read a list of like the forty best or one hundred best movies of all time, both of them. Um. This is a story of um, Shukichi and Tomi. They are the mother and father of uh, four children. They live in the country, um, in the Japanese countryside, and they're going to visit their children who live in Tokyo. And they find when they are there that their children are generally too busy to spend any time with them or to take any interest in their life um the one person who does is the widow of their son shoji um noriko uh, shoji was killed in world war ii uh noriko uh takes him in and shows him hospitality and is kind to them um they you know get shuffled around to their kids houses they get shuffled off to a hot springs for a while um eventually spoiler alert Tommy the mother uh dies at the end of the movie and again her kids are too invested in themselves to um either grieve properly or to um assist their father properly um with any kind of emotional support that he might need it's a fairly simple movie from a from a plot perspective this is not really a plot movie um this is a pivotal movie for a lot of, for the same reasons that Wuthering Heights was a pivotal movie for you. Remember how you said when we were talking about Wuthering Heights that um, one of the reasons it was pivotal is that you know it kind of proved you could watch an old movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And this was this was it for me. I mean, this is one of the earliest. So this is another Criterion film. This is another um, Cutler's purchase um, post the first Criterion movie um, I ever got which we'll talk about later um ozu was written up in um his film floating weeds um which is also very good was uh one of uh, roger ebert's original great films um in his great films book so i was i was was vaguely aware of ozu um but i hadn't seen him until i just picked this up because um it was, you know, it said on the back of the box that it was, you know, considered a masterpiece of world cinema and one of the greatest films of all time. And I was like, I should probably see that movie. Um and I remember when it started, I was like, oh man. I don't know what I'm gonna do with this nineteen fifty three black and white movie where every time someone speaks the camera shifts to them looking almost straight at the camera. Um but fairly quickly in the proceedings I was just like arrested with <clears throat> with whatever emotion that Ozu was you know wanting to put on the screen um and I could do it and I could and it was and I could get it and I was um proud of myself you know I I guess um but in the same way that I talked about in the last episode about how like Shawshank Redemption I was like oh a movie can be this um i said to myself like a movie can be this and i can enjoy it it can be slow it can be black and white it cannot do any of the things that i typically want a movie i thought that i wanted a movie to do and um it can it can you know attach itself onto my heart um and i believe now after having you know watched this movie again i don't i don't watch it often um But I I believe firmly that it, it played a large role in kind of establishing my um, aesthetics in film, like going forward. Um, I think this fits right into everything else. I would kind of I would kind of enjoy um, later in my life. Um, there are well, what did you think? Because you hadn't seen this yet, right? So you watch this for the first time to do this. I,
0: I watched this for the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, to do this podcast and i watched it over two and a half hour long cardio um at the gym i'd started just like start it and i was gonna finish it at home Mm -hmm. i just ended up staying on my arc trainer for two hours and i was arrested in the sense of coming coming into this film after doing this podcast for around after doing you know after having seen enough films to where we thought we were talented talented yeah. we were sound enough we to do definitely a podcast. Think we're talented um it it rests you in so many ways of what it's doing uh uh-huh. um, i watched a video essay on this today actually where it talks about you know just the static like, to me the cinematography of this speaks volumes mm. and, and the fact that um the camera is always static the camera is low the camera is intimate um and even beyond the the breaking of thematic immersion that this film does in terms of breaking the 180 rule or or
1: putting explain the the 180 um, rule the
0: 180 rule necessarily being kind of the fact that you always keep the camera on one pivotal line right um so you still you present a certain kind of omniscient kind of separation Uh for the audience to to kind of um narratively scope how you want the audience to feel so in other words it's it's the presentation of a a stage play as Mm -hmm. it were um this this fucking throws that out the door you know it it is it is intimate in many ways um but beyond that beyond the intimacy of the low shots uh the low shots kind of you know this film 100 percent through the cinematography of atsuta Mm -hmm. um you know, you know, tells, tells a story. And it took, I mean, this, this, this one leans so much into the scripting. um, And it took almost a third of a year to write the script. Mm -hmm. Um, The cinematography is so purposely defined to where you have to focus. The camera is always static. I believe it only moves twice. I I thought it was once. Twice. twice. there's, There's, um, there's a shot where on the seawall it moves and there's a shot also with leading against the wall where it slightly pans. Mm. Um, which I mean, even though I might be mistaken, and I thought maybe might be some <laughs> one of those little Mandela effects where I thought I saw a pan.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But what I found interesting in these, um, and I think this might have been defined by this film, we talked about this in the previous episode, the pillow shots. Mm, yeah. Those shots to kind of establish a sh- an idea. Uh, being... A major fan of of history especially the history of this world um around engelhart kind of talks about in in a book of his uh, modernization and postmodernization. um you know tokyo's rav uh, japan's ravage sure yeah at this point and and the fact that all these pillow shots establish the modernity of tokyo mm-hmm. the smokestacks the electrical lines contrasted with kind of the emotional affect of these two people, and and the story um, that these two two grandparents kind of are telling about, you know, you know, expressing themselves and having kind of a control in their own lives, like rising above the societal obligation to grow out of the ashes mm. um, was intriguing to me. And it's subtle. Everything about this movie is so utterly subtle i know
1: and it's I, I think those pillow shots are really fascinating in a sense i think people i i think a lot of people take that a lot of scholars of ozu seem to take ozu for granted not in the sense that like they kind of mistreat his work but in the sense that they just assume that everybody that's going to be reading something about ozu also kind of has read lots of things about ozu or has seen all the ozu o, ozu movies or has read all the essays um or or has thought well, about thing, Ozu for a long one, time. So the pillow shots kind of come around. The one thing, just before you jump yeah, in, yeah. the one thing I
0: love is the number of people when talking about Ozu and Tokyo Story who cut, jump in and go, I prefer late spring.
1: For, yeah. Well, that's something, and that's, that's something that... Um, apparently, Tokyo Story is kind of anachronistic to a lot of his other work in the sense that I guess he takes... Tokyo Story borrows thematically from a lot of his, his other work, but it also does things... Very differently, so it leaves a lot of the stuff out. Like it's so um, the other movie that I've uh, I've seen a bunch of times is Floating Weeds because it's in the it's in the big Criterion box. I have um, not seen any of the other. Films and so Floating Weeds is an interesting juxtaposition to this one because Floating Leaves is a little more heavily plotted. You know what I mean? So in this movie, that's really just kind of shuffling the grandparents around or the parents around, and um, and and then eventually her dying. But it's mostly the movie is mostly just conversations between people um about the the point that they are in their life. Um and I think the pillow shots are really interesting in this, in the sense that they seem to suggest a kind of transition from one thing to another thing. But the way that people write about it, well the way that scholars write about it is that it isn't so much a transition as they just kind of act as like establishing shots. So a lot of those boat scenes, and Roger Ebert wrote about this too in one of his essays, like, you know, the how it opens with a kind of um And towards the end of the movie, it just like shows tugboats kind of moving around in this, you know, in this body of water or whatever. And they um, show like the tops of houses or they show, you know, um, Kyoko moving through the same kind of alley between houses like a couple of times. Um, And they just kind of talk about them as them just being there to establish kind of a sense of place. But I also think they're really good at maybe for a layperson – um, who isn't, like, so heavy into the scholarship of Ozu, they're really good at establishing how these characters are moving, not just so much from one place to another place, but one period of values to another period of values. No, I agree.
0: Um, this, this is why I find so absolutely fascinating about this. And this is something in the research of this podcast I didn't find in the scholarship um, heavily... And I, so this might be a misinterpretation on my part, and this would one hundred percent be something I'd like to see a response if we're <laughs> wrong. Um, the generational divide plays a big
1: role in yeah. this, um, and apparently that's a big theme in a lot of Ozu's movies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that that,
0: but but it is a sense of the return of nostalgia, and and you know, kind of like the contemplation of, of what is lost, but what seems to be neglected is is the converse i mean not i don't want to say it seems to be neglected cuz that what seems what i have not found the conversation of is the contemplation between the importance of the revitalization of japan as a nation in the wake of world war 2 that their children take upon themselves you know the 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 dedication and the devotion to revitalizing japan as a nation yeah. versus The grandparents devotion to the family, which is, which is inherently, um, and and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a major, I'm not a major Japanophile, but, but I have, I have, um, no, I have friends, no, I don't want to say I have friends, I I just, from some of the kind of base research I've done, um, and base knowledge I have, you know, the, the inheritance uh, of the family plays a pivotal role and you know the, this 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 striking bookmark in their history. You know the the the, the grandparents are, are from a rural area, the children have have gone into the urban area,
1: which they specifically say was not bombed during the war. Yeah, like no, they make that point explicitly clear that it was it was a place that was not affected, but structurally needs, by the war.
0: But is still falling behind. Has you know, especially America is kind of racing ahead. In the technological development, um, because they've lost a place, because Japan has lost a place at the table because of the war, and and because they now need to catch up, there is a shifting in a shifting in the narrative, possibly, and the values of the people, um, the younger generations, to say like we need to bring the nation up. Versus the grandparents holding on to the values of re-need to breed the family, and that's what's interesting is with the Noruko, Nor- Noriko, um, the daughter-in-law, Noriko. Who's, Noriko, who's you know the, the widowed daughter-in-law, yeah. um, who's who's the only one that kind of like unites closer to them is, is she has some she lost somebody in, in that war, and yeah. in, in in that moment she is that gap. That, well, that that bridge.
1: But it's interesting because he, the you know, um, the father uh, Shukichi also lost, you know, and the mother also lost someone. They lost her son yeah. during the war. The, you know, the brother and sister, the older brother and sister, and you know, the younger brother and sister um, lost their brother in the war. The two men that um, the grandfather has known, like knew from the from the town that now live in Tokyo, they each lost sons in the war. But it's interesting in the sense that um, Noriko has that amazing amazing speech at the end of the film where she talks about the fact that she doesn't um she's been a bad widow in the sense that she sometimes doesn't think about um Shoji um she you know she you know, she says she goes days without him without thinking about him um and part of me was thinking that and and then and then the grandfather the father says like you know after losing his wife he's like you have to for, i I would be happy if you would forget about him and re and you know remarry and part of me wants to believe that there's a metaphor contained in that about um a kind of dawning recognition of the fact that we do have to move on with our lives and the fact that this guy that was kind of um so you know he you know Saying like I, you know, my our kids used to be nicer. I'm disappointed that my son's not like a better doctor. Um, but is the they re- seem to have a lot of going on, and but now he's saying like, forget about that, move on with your life, remarry. He's not saying kind of come back to the town. He's not saying. I guess so. I guess you could interpret but is it the as,
0: remarrying, establishing a family in the. I was just going to say
1: that time, exact same thing, but I think inherently it would have to, wouldn't it? So it's kind of the idea of she's she is bogged down in that kind of pre-war life um where she still has a picture of him up in her house she's not remarried um she lives in a kind of boarding house um while everyone else around her has kind of moved on to the point where like the the grandparents grandkids don't even have never even met them before they don't care about them they don't know who they are um this next generation coming up doesn't care as much about the war as, you know, the people that birthed them. Um, but interestingly enough, the people that birthed those people don't seem to care very much about the war either. Um, at least in, at least from this film's perspective. Like, the war belongs to this one generation. Um and that other that that generation is struggling to get over it, while the other generation is struggling to get back to what they had. Um, so you're right, Noriko is a kind of bridge, but I wonder how. I wonder how she's a bridge. I wonder what the quality of that bridge is, or what the purpose of that bridge is, or where that bridge is going. You know what I mean? I mean, I think it's interesting when you talk about bridges. I think it's interesting when they go to the hot springs and they're sitting on that kind of, they're sitting on the wall. You know what I mean? Which is in itself a bridge. To somewhere else, and they end up kind of going back. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they, they were, you know, they were shunted off there because um, Sheik had some—is that her name? Yeah, Sheik had you know some business people coming over to the house, and she didn't want her parents, you know, sleeping over at the house, so they send them to this what they say is a really nice hot spring, and they kind of, you know, there's the implication that they've walked a certain direction to the hot spring, and then when they're like, oh, let's go home, it's too noisy here. This place is for young people. Um, and then Tomi has that first kind of inclination that, like, you know, she feels dizzy that there might be something wrong, and they kind of walk back. Like, they don't walk. There's like an implied bridge there, and they don't walk all the way across the bridge to like wherever the next phase of their life is going to be. Um, and I think this movie is wonderful in the sense that it kind of has all of these. None of these questions are kind of explicitly brought up in the film. They're all just kind of inherent in or implied in the actions and the very limited dialogue that these people have. And like Roger Ebert writes about, um, how the father slash grandfather kind of says yes to everything, but yes, his yeses mean yes, but they also mean no. They also mean he hasn't made up his mind about it. Um, and they also mean like, he isn't quite sure like how he feels about something. Um, and I think that's inherent in, like, the whole film. Like, nobody really kind of knows what they want to do with themselves, except for the children, who really just kind of want to get this over with and just go back to their life. Yeah.
0: I think this is, this is I don't know, if, if there's one other thing I want to bring up, that's kind of 180 on, on the focus of what we're talking about. And that is, if you want to get into it now, just I think it's get into it. Ozu's critique of film in itself. Yep. In that everywhere I read talks about how like, oh, he subverted expectations of what film was and he broke rules. You know, he had um, changing lines of perspective um, and framing in conversation and dialogue or breaking the 180 rule or yep. his denial of dissolves are kind of like letting shots linger in and out in terms of editing of mm-hmm. changing and has people hate to use this term like cinephiles are people who critique it um, I think Roger Ebert stated in his review how you know he deliberately put a teapot into the foreground of his shots to kind of say he was doing this you know it's because mm-hmm. everything was deliberate and that that's fair but do you think and and to me, it comes into this. Do you think some of the times he's doing the things he do he does in this film? I mean, I still need to you know come back to his other films like Late Spring um, and um, you know, Autumn Afternoon, Floating Weeds. Do you think he's doing what he's doing because he says these arbitrary rules recreate don't really stand up to the audience in the sense of when I watched this the first time. Mm-hmm. I didn't fucking notice a lot of these rule breakings. Mm -hmm. It took me an an observer. It took me looking into the essays, watching the video, watching the, you know, the the video journals on it, watching the video essays on it to like realize, Oh yeah, he broke all these, these tenements. He broke these rules. You know, there's, there's a certain level of intimacy that you don't, that, that you, you feel coming into the film um, that you don't get with something that's more traditionally shot. But is it a subversion of film, or is it just saying you can tell a narrative in the way you need to and askew the rules?
1: I, I think I would. What would you? Yeah. What do you
0: think? Oh, I, I think he just says it doesn't fucking matter.
1: I, I think it's a. The only reason I think I would say it's a subversion is because he's purposely doing. And again, this is just like from reading. No, I think I no,
0: I, I do think he's purposely doing it. But I think he's yeah. say, I think he's trying to say what I'm doing. I'm doing on purpose, but I'm trying to say that these things can be done by a filmmaker. You don't have to adhere yourself to rules. Yeah, of course he follows really heavily yeah. rule of thirds in terms of like foreground shots and whatnot. But that's in terms of shot composition and an ease of of the way a shot looks and maybe you know there's certain maybe slightly more inherent rules that exist, but some of these other rules that have been created in terms of cinematography or in terms of editing. Or more arbitrary, in the sense that because our forefathers of film have done it, so it must be.
1: Mm. Um, I, I don't really know how to answer that. I guess I would assume all of those things probably went into it. And then he also probably had a very specific vision of what he did and did not want to do, what his movies were going to look like. And his movies looked like what they ended up being... More so, a reflection of whatever the um, the influential film techniques at the time were, or were supposed to be, or what the common film techniques at the time were, or were supposed to be. Um, so you know, the idea that, like you said, that he lingers on shots too long, or that he lingers on um, like interior scenes. Um, where like if someone goes upstairs we don't follow them upstairs necessarily but the shot lingers in that area until they for the exact amount of time they come back down I think is the thing that Roger Eber pointed out Um, I also noticed that there's um, when you watch it with the subtitles there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get um, translated and I, I don't know if it's because it's gibberish per se or because it's not important but it's a loss of you perceive it as a, like a loss of narrative. In the sense that you know, what did that person say? Especially because we don't speak Japanese, what did that person say? Is that important? What they're saying, but in reality, when you kind of think about the idea that like the like the thing that the grandfather says more than anything is yes, and that can mean so many different things. Um, you know, a lot of the work in this film is being done in this this almost too subtle to be perceptible way. Um, And I think a lot of that can be, you can see a lot of that stuff in the fact that like when people deliver monologues, you don't get reaction shots. So like when Kyoko's delivering that, or Noriko's delivering that, um, you know, that really breathtaking speech at the end about, you know, how she doesn't think about uh, Shoji as much as she should or she wants to and that she's been a bad widow. um, You don't ever see the grandfather's face when she says that. You just see his reacting to it you know when she's not even reacting to it you just see his response to her when she's done and it's one of those things where the emotion becomes more honest the longer that she speaks um and like the the honesty aspect here i think is what that kind of subversion of common techniques speaks to he's not I think he said that this is, like, his most melodramatic movie, but I also... It just strikes me as, like, a very honest movie, and that, you know, even though the grandparents are just kind of, like, you know, allowing themselves to be hustled around to wherever they're going, they also acknowledge the fact that, like, this isn't really how they wanted to spend their trip. Um, which no one else really seems to acknowledge. They all think that they had a really good time. Like, no one's really listening.
0: Well, there's, a,
1: um, there's an interesting...
0: This is he's such a. I mean, I want I need to watch his filmography. And it's almost like a, a subject of um, a bonus episode.
1: All the re- the other fifty three Ozu films,
0: <laughs> in the sense of there is a a timelessness and and a sense of passing with with this movie. That's interesting. The the being framed by the beginning and ending with with those shots of the train tracks, the people you know going about their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, just reading now about how this gravesite famously has um, the word mu, which means like nothingness or nowhere, Mm -hmm. um, but has, you know, slight connotations in in Buddhist translation, um, which is beyond the scope of my knowledge. But there is, this is a film that's intriguing because there's so many layers beyond the grasp of what me and you can understand as two Western film goers.
1: Right. So like that's in like, you kind of talked about the train and I think it's really interesting in the sense that, and you tell me if you just agree or disagree with this. I think in a film, normally when we're analyzing a film, if you're kind of, if you're going to present a motif or you're going to present a running theme, you're going to present it on a number of occasions, right? Um, It's going to be a thing that kind of crops up here and there. And it's, you know, if I'm thinking specifically of the train in this sense. Um if in a normal movie if a train is if the idea of a train is going to be like a heavy metaphor, you're going to see a bunch of trains. You're just going to see them. They're going to be moving in and out, they're going to have different contexts. You literally see two trains in this movie. You know they take trains, but you don't see you see two two kind of like equal shots of the train at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie and to me it suggests that kind of i could and i didn't see it at the beginning of the movie and i saw it kind of at the end of the movie and this is probably like the sixth or seventh time i've watched this movie that the train is almost like acts as a um like a disruptor in the sense that like the train brings them to tokyo and everything that happens in tokyo is bad the train brings them back to um their village and on the train um Tomi has a, like a heart attack or something she has to get off the train and stop in osaka um and then at the end of the movie after noriko has you know had her monologue she's told noriko that you know noriko says life is disappointing and with a big smile on her face Kyo, uh Nor- noriko says yes it is um Nariko gets the one person who is really taking care of this family that is thinking of something, somebody other than herself, gets on a train, and and leaves, and with the with the idea that she's not coming back, like they, you know, she tells Kyoko a couple of times like come visit me in Tokyo, and you know, Kyoko's kind of intimates that she would like her to come back, and Nariko's kind of like well I can't I can't come back I'm I'm a busy woman, she defends the activities of the children Mm -hmm. who. Um, Wouldn't stand by their father and, you know, were only thinking of themselves. Um, And she kind of admits the fact that, like, at some point, I'm going to turn into this. I'm going to turn into this person. Like, it's the train is almost like a harbinger of, like, the end of times. Like, it's going to take you away and it's not going to bring you back. Or, and if it brings you back, it's going to bring you back um, incomplete somehow. Um, But that's just two times. That's just two trains. And I think that's the great thing about this, about these Ozu movies. And that's, but it's like the hard thing about the Ozu movies too, is that between those two things, like so many other things happen while seemingly not happening at all, because you know there's no great drama, there's you know no real great monologues where you know emotions are being, um, like really laid bare. It's just you know, it's just these two. It's just. It's just two things, and he, because he's setting up all these pillow shots, you don't know what's a you don't know what is a metaphor for something else, and what is literally just to show you where you are. Um, but these things all work, so they can't be one hundred percent subversive because they're all there in the film. Um, but is it subversive in the sense that? He's not coming out at any point and saying, like, you need this is a thing you need to look at. You know what I mean? Like, he's never saying, this is a thing you need to look at. And I think that's one of the great things, and you talk a lot about blocking. It's one of the great things about this movie in terms of the blocking um, is that you never really, like, as you watch the movie, you you know, and so you mentioned, like, the teapot thing. Like, he puts this, this teapot and everything. But as you watch the movie, you kind of become more and more aware, I think, of the fact that these frames are very full. And what are they full of? Like, and should you be noticing things within these frames that you're just really not noticing? And it's—I don't think he's being—he's not doing it to be like—he's not trying to trick you. And we're not trying to say that we're like smarter than everyone because we noticed it. I think we just like to notice these things and these are things that people have written about that he's just kind of doing like remember I was reading this article about um, they're Easter eggs
0: they're Easter eggs other time
1: yeah by the, uh, so David Bordwell is a, he wrote this book called Ozu the Poetics of Film and apparently he, he wrote the Criterion um, essay for Tokyo Story but I forget which movie he was writing about um, but he showed like this series of frames and I guess Ozu Autumn Afternoon
0: uh, maybe because a lot of people go back to that
1: uh, it might be I don't know um, he showed how in all these different scenes, he kind of has like this decaying amount of frame, or this descending amount of frames, in the sense that like the setup for the first scene here is like four frames long. The setup for the second scene in this location is three frames long. The you know and this is with the pillow shots. The setup for the you know the third scene is two frames. The setup for like the penultimate scene is one frame. Very of this place. being the elite.
0: What? That's, that's a reference you won't
1: understand. What?
0: <laughs> I said that's very being the elite. Good.
1: What's that? Was was that mean? Another wrestling reference. Oh, okay. Um, I wouldn't have noticed that unless someone showed me that. Yeah. In the in a book like that, that's happening yeah, exactly. Um, but that's like you know he calls his book the Poetics of Film. I mean that is what he's doing here is like is poetry. I mean is I don't know. It's... And and it's
0: it's interesting too, and, and this is why it's almost a good subject for a bonus episode now. It's the fact that when somebody's doing this, everything they're doing then comes in the question. Mm. Like you know, you have to do a real deep dive in what they're doing, and what you can see in Tokyo Story. You know, you could see somebody who's very deliberately taking action in certain ways to elicit a certain response. Knowing he knowing he he wants a certain response to be made, but mm-hmm. but in the same way, just letting you know that everything was was made was done on purpose.
1: Well so, I mean the, the part that I, like one of the things that I, like that got me the last time that I watched it, which is two days ago yesterday, two days ago, um, was the fans. So everyone's always fanning themselves through the whole movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just got these these fans and they're fanning themselves through the whole movie. Um, I almost... So the the um, the grandparents, they go to Kochi's house, which is their eldest son, and then they get kind of like hustled out of there because he's got to work and they go to Sheeg's house and Sheeg kind of calls Nariko, and she's like, oh, can you take them out for a day? They haven't been anywhere. And Noriko ends up taking them to their house and there's a scene at that house that I almost lost it where... They're talking about their dead son and um you know, she has this picture and then she's giving them um sake and you know, they talk about how the father likes to drink and how the son likes to drink and all this other stuff. And then Noriko starts fanning them. When they're sitting at the table eating I guess they're eating soup and they're drinking sake and, you know, drinking tea, and then all of a sudden she just starts kind of like you know, the fans are always going the whole time, so you don't even. It's one of those things you don't even really notice it, but the, she's not fanning herself, she's fanning them. And then the shot cuts to Sheeg and her husband sitting in chairs, just kind of like casually fanning themselves. Um, and it, uh, it was like a total fucking mind blower. And it's. And then, like, I read a bunch of essays about it, and it's. That scene is all like that. Cut is always mentioned in all of these essays. And it's a good thing that I never would have even considered because... If only we had jobs, only in film. Right, yeah. Visit our Patreon. But, yeah, but it wasn't... I wouldn't even consider it because, in, because they're always fanning themselves. So it's just like if you're not watching for it, like you just think it's more people just waving fans around. But the fans are like a way of showing comfort and they're a way of sharing your life with somebody you know what I mean it's like just almost like giving someone breath by fanning them and these people are only giving themselves breath and it's just it's like a thing that I didn't see at any point until I was 36 and watching this movie and then I watched it and I was like what the fuck <laughs> like it's such a simple little thing but you're still 35 right 36 I'll be 37 in two weeks I was a year off why
0: I thought you're becoming.
1: Is there a pool? I Thought you're becoming thirty six. No, 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 I've been a thirty six weirdo for a long time. Um, but yeah, so you just—it's just—it's amazing. It's just weirdly amazing when because it, it doesn't even seem like it's gonna—it should be amazing, but it just is. It's just—it's just strange. It's like a great. It's you know everyone says it's a great film. But then you watch it and you're like, "Why is this a great film?" And then at, by the end of it, you're like, "Holy shit, that's a yeah, great yeah, exactly. fucking movie." Um, I don't know. It's just you know.
0: There's like a good deep dive that we're. This is definitely bonus episode material. I'm telling you,
1: yeah. the, the other 53 movies will do it. We'll go all the silent movies <laughs> and everything else. We'll. we'll
0: at the end, we're just like, "Oh, he's just talking about masturbation." All of his movies are just about jacking off. Good job, Ozu. Nothingness this, nothing this just meant the feeling <laughs> you feel after you come.
1: Oh, What a great way to end that conversation. Do your thing.
0: Oh, we're talking about the end of the podcast, aren't we?
1: Unless you have anything else to say.
0: Oh, I think we have plenty to say. It's just we need to become more verbose. I, did you know Wim Wenders made a documentary on him? Yes. I haven't seen it. Talk talk about that probably.
1: Well, apparently they. Um, there's a couple of people. We when Wim Wenders is one of them who gets like very emotional talking about like Ozu and what Ozu meant to them as a filmmaker. Um, but that makes perfect sense. I mean, the fact that Ozu influenced Wim Wenders is like it's like a direct. You know, that's a direct line. Yeah, like no shit. Yeah.
0: Um. Anyways, uh, given the conversations we've had today, from the. Really intense, deep conversation we had on the amazing piece of cinema that is *The Breakfast Club* versus mm-hmm. that piece of popcorn fluff that is *Tokyo Story*. <laughs> if you have anything to say to us about either of those opinions, um, unless your opinion—if your opinion especially is that *Breakfast Club* is an extremely important part of cinema—please tell us why, and we will engage because we really. Really, really want to know why?
1: I have questions. If, you, if that's your opinion, And not want to tell you're we, wrong. No, I just want to know.
0: We want to engage.
1: What's up? where did that come from? Because
0: as we do this podcast, we realize that sometimes, like, we're wrong. It's interesting.
1: I, I've never realized. I've never realized that at all. Do you realize
0: that? I won't admit it. <laughs> um, but you can tweet us at Twitter dot com slash film pivotal
1: yeah that sounds right or you can go to pivotal pivotal film podcast
0: I've drank you can't get through that one
1: at gmail dot com I'm having trouble with this pivotal film podcast it's a lot of a lot of peas it's a real pivotal alliteration film podcast at gmail dot com um and you can just tell us you know that you know that's be or good. good. That's
0: actually also <laughs> a good thing to do. If somebody wants to text us, or text us. Yeah, we have a Yeah, text over. us. Um, if somebody wants to, to tweet us about an essay and they want to see us write on, we'll do it about movies. I'll do it, at least, about a film. I'll write an essay about sure. whatever you want me to talk about. If you want me to write an essay about Terrifier. Bespoken essays. We'll do it. <laughs> Is that
1: what? Bespoke essays, yeah. Is
0: that bespoke? Is that yeah. what bespoke actually means? Sure. I don't know what that word means. I, I had to look up um, what word did I have to look up? Really, Codicile? I had to look up the other day because I was looking at a Wikipedia description of the movie American Ultra. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that great piece of cinema made by the creator of Project X. Um, and where Tothor Grace's character gets murdered by Bill Pullman. And he's like, oh, you didn't understand the codicile awesome. of, of the situation. I was like, what's that word mean? I had to look it up and
1: that's the, the, didn't you read The Da Vinci Code?
0: Oh, I did. And then I immediately erased it from my mind. <laughs> Much like Foucault's Pendulum. Oh,
1: yeah. Fuck you,
0: Umberto Eco. Yeah. Those
1: are good books. We're,
0: not, we're never going to get into that. But there's, books. If we there did is, a
1: Pivotal Books podcast, I'd have to put be... The Da Vinci Code on it.
0: Oh, Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code would be one thing. But... There is a long-standing feud between me and... If you necessarily... I, I hate Umberto Eco. Yeah. Hate, 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 But he would hate, probably be on your list, right? Hate, no. God, no. Pivotal books? No. Right? The, the three pages it takes to describe how Foucault's pendulum moves? Yeah, no. I've, Umberto I've, Eco, go fuck yourself. I've
1: owned all of those Umberto I, Eco I books, you and I have, you know, I have, um, I've read at a one couple point, of them. But...
0: At one point, you stood up for him. I just don't think he's a terrible writer. He's There's worse r- writers. I mean, yes, there is, but there are not the many The of worse... the Rose,
1: I think, is not a bad, not a bad book. But...
0: I never even gave it a shot after reading Fugo's Pendulum. Hmm.
1: So those
0: are big there books.
1: Were... There Remember are... when like something like those two books could be huge?
0: Remember yeah. that? Yeah, and, and now we get educated by Tara West. Uh, who fucking cares? That book uh, I don't know if
1: that's a big. No, what books do we get? We get uh, Girl on the Train and. Uh, well, that's
0: years ago, though.
1: What's the other book that just came out? That's. I don't know. Girl on the Dragon
0: tattoo?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> go to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com uh, to tell Derailed us why we're dumb. Podcast or you can go to uh, pivotalfilm.com and you can send us uh, a message at the contact thing. or you Which can will probably at, go to one of our emails anyway. Who knows? I don't it know. might. It might go nowhere. Maybe by the time we um, air this, I'll have figured out where that goes. But we'll see. Um, it has a
0: list. Just like by the time we aired episode 90, I promised we had more Instagram photos.
1: Now we don't even have an Instagram page. Which is the right move. I think it was.
0: We went back in time. Because apparently Instagram's a the rage.
1: <laughs> is that the Instagram song? No, that's the back in time song. Oh, right, right. Back in the future, right? Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm going to change the ending to. So um yeah until we talk to you again whenever that is um go watch back to the future drink a beer and uh we'll talk to you uh in the future
0: next week or no two weeks from now <laughs> but really we'll be talking to you in about like five, uh, five four weeks
1: three weeks four weeks <coughs> four weeks, four weeks. Four what's weeks the next week? the next new movie we're gonna review is us yeah we're gonna
0: have Probably several movie reviews of that episode though. Bow, bow,
1: bow, bow, bow.
0: You guys can stop listening now. <laughs>